Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture comes from Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 through 13. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. And succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led back in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall be to the Lord for a memorial and for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, everybody. And welcome, everyone, to the last sermon in our Epiphany series. Let me, uh, you'll see a video to this effect later on, but let me just go ahead and say live here, would love for you to join us Wednesday night for Ash Wednesday. Um, I would say we probably do other services that are more fun. I don't know that we do anything that's actually more meaningful or important than an Ash Wednesday service when we willfully, willingly, voluntarily look into the mirror to see just how far short we are falling, to lean into grace, to lean into practices like confession and the seeking of forgiveness in the hopes that God would shape us for life lived in the light of the resurrection. So that's this Wednesday, 6.30. Hopefully, we'll see you here then. There is a lot of stuff going on in the world. And I, and I feel, you're good about not putting this pressure on me, but I feel, I guess, what is a self-imposed pressure to say something when Russia invades uh, the Ukraine. I don't know what to pray. Now, I'm not, I'm not conflicted as to whether or not I think the invasion is wrong. I think it's wrong at every level, uh, morally, ethically, legally. I think it's wrong. What I don't know is what to pray for where the Ukrainian people are concerned. I, I am a person who believes in nonviolence, but I don't want to be the person who claims my pure nonviolent structure while I leave other people vulnerable to be damaged. So I don't know what to pray. So I am confessing to you that I don't know what to pray. But I find myself praying for the people in Ukraine. I am also praying for the aggressors. And I am praying for all the people who even now as we speak are, are making what ends up being, uh, what end up being life and death decisions. So that's my ask of you. Will you join me in praying for the Ukrainian people? In praying that God will break the heart of the aggressors such that they will stop. And in praying for all the people who are in positions to make uh, decisions that somehow, that somehow uh, life and dignity and future and hope can be preserved and protected as best we can. Um, there you have it. All of that was completely free of charge. But we are going to start talking about baseball now, right? Talk about a segue. We're going to start talking about baseball now. Uh, and did you know, according to Major League uh, MLB.com, the three greatest baseball songs ever are, number three, The Greatest by Kenny Rogers, Center Field by John Fogarty, Agree with that one. And then number one, you'll not be surprised, is Take Me Out to the Ball Game, typically, typically played on an organ. The first time an organ was used at a baseball game, it was used at Wrigley Field 
all the way back in 1941, amen, Chicagoans, 1941. Now, now, well more than half of the teams have gone back to a live organ player. In other words, now some of you cynics will really get a charge out of this, there, are, there is a higher percentage of major league teams that feature an organ than churches, amen. Glad that you played the organ today. <laughs> that was really good. The organ is making something of a comeback, and, and it's because it, it seems like the people uh, who are making these kinds of decisions recognize that there's value in a really good organist. Like a really good organist at the game can help uh, enhance the experience of the baseball game. They can kind of guide you down something of an emotional path. I mean, yes, they're there to help play the national anthem and all that kind of good stuff, but man, they also can help to build some tension, help you, can, help you to experience that there's, there's something coming, there's a big moment coming. They can help kind of guide us through, navigate us through the, the emotion of a celebration, let's say, right? They, a good organist, can, can actually have some fun, make fun, help us to laugh, in fact, I found this little clip. This is a guy who articulates pretty well what it is that, what value an organist can bring to a game. On a steamy summer night in Washington, Matthew Van Hoos is running up a score atop Nationals Park. He's been playing live organ riffs here since 2010. You kind of get to know the players and like who is fast in the box and who isn't because it makes a difference with the music. Last fall, the Nationals invested in a new organ and moved Van Hoos into his own space. You're trying to get a good amount of tremolo in the sound to make it have that real kind of ballpark organ sound as opposed to like more of like a church organ sound. The new perch allows Van Hoos to play with the windows open so the sounds of the ballpark, the crack of the bat and the cheers of the crowd can better inspire his next tune. Sometimes I'll try to do like typical baseball prompts and sometimes I'll just throw a funny reference to a song. He also gets ideas from an elite roster. I actually got to know some of the other baseball organists at the stadiums and so we, we kind of borrow ideas from each other. He coordinates with the stadium DJ and other in-game entertainment in a symphony of sorts. When he's not here at the ballpark, Van Hoos is on the faculty at American University and putting a doctorate in piano performance to use in different venues. I still do performances and solo recitals and collaborative recitals, so, so it's mostly piano um, when, I'm, when I'm out of here, sometimes with some broke organ thrown in. And while classical all-stars like Beethoven and Bach are consistent repertoire, the Nats are something else. It's one of the great things about baseball is that anything can happen on a given night, so you never know. Like a night that might seem like it's nondescript actually becomes really interesting later on. In Washington, <laughs> I'm Karen Kafa. Like, so he just kind of ad libs what he does. Adds so much to the game uh, experience, too. It's so that, cool that. to hear an organ go off, even just for yeah, five, six seconds. That's for sure. Got me up and yeah, baseball knows that a good organist knows how to carry us. It enhances, enhances our experience of the baseball game, helps us move from inning to inning, point to point, all that kind of good stuff. The stakes are a whole lot higher when we enter the sanctuary, I would say. And yet, Music, and more broadly, worship, plays a similar sort of role. Worship moves us from place to place to place. Tamara said it well earlier, and I, and I did. I asked her to kind of talk through what happens if we're going to say right up front that we don't shape or change God by our worship, then what are we doing in here? And I would submit to you that we're doing very important work. Uh, the, the liturgy that we do here, and liturgy actually means the work of the people, the work we are doing here is essential. And yes, for each of us as we live our individual lives, but it is essential as we then move around out there like a school of fish, the people of God trying to help all of creation experience life lived in the light of the resurrection. There is some work that we do here that you can't do anywhere else. I love being in nature, I really do. I, I love being in a ski lift chair at the top of a mountain and there is something about that that feels spiritual to me, right? I love a good coffee shop and a really important conversation that I can have with somebody else. And I can see where someone might say, yeah, well, that's the church I attended today. And I, and I get all of that. That all, that all feels spiritual, and it can be spiritual. It can be even good, I would say. But it is not what we do here. 
What we do in here is different. What we do in here is important. What happens in here is that God shapes our imaginations toward a particular vision and goal. God paints this picture. Life lived in the light of the resurrection. What does resurrection life look like? Well, we get that picture painted here quite a bit. But then we are shaped to be people who can actually live and move and function in the light of the resurrection. Do people come to church kind of just to have their tanks filled? Yes. But I would submit to you, while that is good and that is fine, we're doing something more than just filling your tank when you come here. We are being shaped to be the people of God, the people who put some tangibility on the life and the presence and the grace of God. And I'm telling you, you need communion every time you can get your hands on it in order to better be, better and better and better be the tangible expression of the grace and the hospitality, the welcome, the love, the forgiveness of God. There are some things we do here in this room that don't get done in your Sunday school classroom, no matter how good class was today. There are some things that get done in this room that you can't do in a one-on-one, you-and-God devotional life. As good as that is, as important, as essential as that is, there are some things that happen in this room, in our liturgies, in our rituals, in the stories that we, we rehearse and we retell all the time. There are some things that happen in this room that don't happen anywhere else. God does some of God's most important shaping work here as we show up to be shaped. And I'm sorry, you can't do it anywhere else. Now, there are other churches where you can do it. I would prefer you do it here. (laughs) Yes, other churches are doing a similar kind of work, but I want to push back a little bit on this notion that one can be separated from the community of faith and separated, more importantly, from the rituals of the people of God where we learn who God is and learn who we are as a reflection, some of that stuff can only happen here. This is our last sermon, like I said, in the book of Epiphany. This sermon in Isaiah 55 has a particular historical backdrop that's important for us. It turns out there has been an an aggressor country way back when. An aggressor country by the name of Babylon has invaded. They invaded, they killed a bunch of people, a bunch of the Israelites, carried a whole bunch of them off into uh, exile. And now the people of God have just heard in Isaiah 40, this comes in in the book of Isaiah, but in a section of the book that we refer to as 2nd Isaiah, chapters 40 to 54 or 55, depending on who who you are reading at the time. In Isaiah 40, God says, hey, I have an announcement to make. The exile is over, and it's time for everybody to come home. It's time for everybody to come home, back to Jerusalem, back to the temple, to rebuild a life, to restart the project of learning how to be together and learning how to embody the purposes of the very presence of God. God announces the end of the season of punishment, exile at the hands of the Babylonians. He announces plans for great and victorious return to Jerusalem complete restart of the project of God to have a people to call God's own and to shape that people to live in a reality of God's calling, a reality in which love wins. But returning from exile isn't as easy as you might think. In fact, history tells us that some people chose to stay in captivity, believing that the trip home would be too hard. In fact, to this day, there remains a Jewish community in what is now present-day Iraq. Some people chose to stay, though, because they had accommodated their faith, actually, to the, cap- the, the, the captors and the gods of the captors. Maybe just a little bit, but they had accommodated themselves to those other beliefs, and they had, they had kind of allowed their lives to be reshaped by some of those other gods and some of those other beliefs, and, and really, it was kind of working for them. Captivity was kind of working for them, and so they also were really unconvinced that it was worth the trip all the way back home. And so Isaiah 40 to 55 is meant to fund and fuel the imagination 
of the people of God still in captivity, to try to convince them, no, freedom is what we want. Ultimate freedom is what we want. Ultimate freedom is what God wants. Freedom from captivity in all of its forms. But in order to summon the energy to make the long trip home, maybe we need to do some work on your imagination first. When you come into the sanctuary, yes, God is concerned about your body and how your body is going to be faithful or not, obedient or not. But when you come into the sanctuary, here's something else that's happening. God is trying as best God can to shape your imagination, to challenge what we believe is possible or true, to try to believe, to try to help us to understand that what God thinks is possible and true is actually in our lives possible and true. So yes, God wants to shape your your bodies, what your hands do, what your mouth says. But maybe even before that, God is trying to shape your imagination to help you to consider, to help me to consider that there is another reality possible here and now, here and now. What God was doing for them, God is trying to do for us, shape an imagination in the hopes that someday that reshaped imagination offers some fuel to our bodies. Brueggemann says it like this, it is unmistakable that before there could be a geographical departure from the empire and exile, there must be a liturgical, emotional, imaginative departure. Israel in exile must be able to think and feel and imagine its life out beyond Babylonian administration. Now, before I go to the second part of his quote, let me, let me ask you something. Is there still captivity today? There is. There's all different kinds of captivity out there today. God offers freedom from all different kinds of captivity. The question for us is, are we able to envision or imagine what that freedom might look like? Freedom from a particular way of life, freedom from particular definitions of success, freedom from addictions, freedom from habits and practices that are ultimately destructive, habits and practices that carry us farther and farther away from God, from grace. Do we actually believe that there can be freedom from all that holds our culture and all of us in it as individuals? Do we actually believe that there can be freedom from captivity in all of its forms? Yes, says the God of freedom. Yes, says the God who authors freedom. But perhaps the work begins in your imagination. Israel, and I would suggest us too, must so trust the rhetoric of assurance and victory that it can flex its muscles of faith and sense that the cadences of faith, the rhythms, the patterns of faith are more compelling than the slogans of the empire. Just a few slogans, right? You, and I pick on this one all the time. The one who dies with the most toys, what? Wins. In our world, there is this belief that the one who has the most bullets wins. The one who has the most power wins. All of those would fit into the category of slogans of the empire. Those are all slogans of the empire. If the empire was printing bumper stickers, it might have all of those things on there. The one who has the most toys. One who has the most power. Win at all costs might be another one. (laughs) But we are different people. And the question is this. Do we have the belief that the God who sacrificed everything we see in the face of Christ, do we actually have the belief that there can be, right here and now, a different reality as it is embodied by the people of God? Or are we the kinds of Christians who say, oh, God, take us away from this ugly place so that someday we can finally be really free and really obedient in heaven after we die? That is not scriptural. What God says is, I have come that you should have life, abundant life. God is concerned with freedom, real, right now kind of freedom. Consequently, God is saying, 
The slogans of the empire are lies. I know Babylon is huge. And Babylon seems to have plastered those bumper stickers, their slogans, everywhere. It seems to be everywhere you look, you see the slogans of the empire. Babylon's reach is incredible. Can you really be faithful in Babylon? God says, well, I don't know, but I am calling you back home where you can be my people and be free to be my people. So like we said, all the way back in Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So come on home, come on home. Now what happens throughout the rest of this passage, the rest of these chapters from Isaiah 40 to 55, God uses worship language spoken through the prophet. God uses worship language, uses the word singing a lot, uses the word song a lot. God is saying essentially this, you ready for this? You all will need to worship your way back to freedom. You'll need to worship your way back to this home where you can be the people of God. You're going to have to worship and shape your imagination. Because if you worship well, it shapes your imagination. One of the sub-themes of the book of Revelation goes something like this. When we worship poorly, and by poorly I mean when we worship dishonestly or we worship the wrong sorts of deities, let's say, destruction is inevitable. And not just for the worshiper, but for the life around the worshiper. But Revelation is also careful to say, when the people of God worship well, and by well... We mean this, we worship the right deity, and we do so honestly in a way that allows God to shape us. Again, we don't shape God, but God shapes us. Then not only is the, is the life recovered, not only is a person's mind and imagination recovered, but it is good for creation when the people of God remember who God is and then remember who we are as a reflection of who God is. What a great place for an amen on all God's people's head. Not terrible. <laughs> Worship is important. The work we do in this room is important. And yes, for your own mind and heart and life. But creation is still aching for us, the people of God, to remember who God is and who we are as a result, as a reflection. A couple other places in the book of Isaiah. See, the former things have come to pass. The new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Isaiah 44, sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. It's almost as if God is saying, listen, if you'll come and if you'll gather and if you'll sing the right song, slowly but surely, it's kind of like praying the Lord's Prayer. The words get into your mind and your heart, your imagination, your soul. Come and worship, God says, and let me shape you. Isaiah 49, sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his suffering ones. Isaiah 51, so the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion, or Jerusalem, with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Isaiah 52, break forth together into singing, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. You can almost see God begging with God's people to summon the courage to believe. To summon the courage to believe that even that kind of captivity can be overcome. To summon God's people to believe that there is hope in a future, even amongst those who would understand themselves to be hopeless. Hopeless. One of the ways they understood hopelessness was childlessness. There's even a word for them. Sing. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Burst into song and shout, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate woman will be more than the children of her that is married, said the Lord. Because, you all, 
You all are familiar, right, with all of the stories in Scripture when God takes a family, a family tree, but looks a whole lot like a stump and somehow gives that stump hope and future. Literally, barren women given children. God says, that's who I am. And if you will gather and worship, if you will gather and sing these songs, maybe I'll be able to distract you away from the slogans of the empire and the impossibility of new life and romance you at least slowly but surely into this new reality, a new imagination where you can finally start to make out the movement of God who is himself the author of life. Let me ask you again before I move on. Is real freedom even possible? I mean, think through all the different ways that you understand yourself as being held captive by whatever. Think through all the different ways that you and we, as a culture, are held hostage. Captives. Is real freedom even possible? To the people in the room who love addicts, who have an addict somehow in your family, is real freedom even possible? Sometimes we're addicted to substances and sometimes we're addicted to opinions. (laughs) Sometimes we're addicted to postures, dispositions. Is real freedom for a person or for a people even possible? Well, it is, but you may not know it until you sing it. It is, but you may not know it until you worship that direction Often enough that you finally are able to turn a corner and see something that you never could have seen otherwise. There is an odd way to be alive, and that odd way is typically called, are you ready for this? Christianity. (laughs) It is. It's an odd way to be alive. It has its own unique and odd and strange definitions of success. I mean, the very language of our sacred texts say ridiculous things like this. The first or last, and the last or first. But man, the, the empire seems to want to tell us, no, 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 the first, well, they're first. And the last, they happen to be last. We're odd. Or at least we're meant to be. I'm of the opinion that we can't be odd in the way that God dreams for us to be Odd until or unless we are built or rebuilt via worship. Ritual, rehabiting our lives. Rehabiting in a way that shapes our imagination so that then, with the reshaped imaginations, our feet walk different paths than they would otherwise. Our mouths say different words than they would have otherwise. Our hands do other things than they would have otherwise. That doesn't mean you quit your job. It means you do your job in uniquely Christian sorts of ways. Now that will take some imagination. That's what God wants to speak to your, my, our imagination. Now we get to chapter 55. Listen as the heart of God is on full display here, begging, pleading for his people to consider that there is another way forward possible. Verse 1 in chapter 55, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You that have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me, God says, and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David, King David. So here's the deal. God's dream, God's intentions, they are set, secure. 
As much as that promise belonged to David, it now belongs to the exiles returning home, and it belongs to each of us, but there are many of us who will never know it. We'll never know it, that ours is the promise. We'll never know that creation is waiting on us to figure out who God is and who we are as a reflection. And here's part of the reason we will never know it, is because we just, we just can't seem to make it regularly, and we don't worship and we try to replace it with something else and ultimately we don't learn the cadences of faith. We don't learn the habits and the rhythms that slowly but surely build a person in the same kind of way that acorns become oak trees. Your habits are right now determining who you will be. Right now, where you sit, the habits, the habits that you have perhaps constructed, maybe you have done the really good and hard work, you have evacuated from your life all of the bad habits, and you have replaced them with all the good habits. Congratulations. Those habits are right now shaping who you're going to be, how the people around you, perhaps children, will experience you in your life. And maybe there are some in the room who have habits that they have fallen into. That happens, right? Some people fall into habits. Now they're just as powerful, sometimes even more powerful, because you don't have any sensation that you work to develop this habit. But whether they are intentional or unintentional habits, your habits My habits, the ones that I carried with me today, our habits together, they are right now shaping who we're going to be. More specifically, given our passage today, the habits that we carry with us into the sanctuary are shaping how we're going to embody faith for the people around us. This is why worship, proper worship, is so incredibly important. As we do the hard work of liturgy, we are sifting through the other voices vying for our attention, remembering the most important origin stories, practicing the practices that make for a life lived in God's reality, hospitality, listening, giving, blessing. You'll notice that we rehearse in here postures that we hope that we are all living out there. Our corporate worship is intended to shape us to be the people God intends for us to be. And I am telling you, you, we, I can't do it without the shaping that happens during corporate worship. Because God has something for us. God has something for us. And it's not just just an assignment. It is that, but it's more than that. God has a new life for us. God has a reality for us. Yes, there are still the other voices still vying for our attention, still asking for our pledges, right? Yes, those voices are still out there. Worship And all of the work that we do in this room, it's part of the way that we're able to withstand the constant pressure that the other voices bring to bear on our lives. This is what God has for us. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes from my mouth, words already spoken, y'all. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out, this is another Exodus term, you you shall be released from captivity. You shall go out in joy and be led back in peace. And all of creation will celebrate along with you. This is what is out there for us if we have worshiped well enough to get a glimpse of it and see it and chase it. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song 
and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn, it's a symbol of judgment, as is the briar. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, life. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, life. And it shall be to the Lord for a memorial, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So I was sitting in one of those rooms where I was, uh, had the, the honor, the privilege of asking young ministers, typically younger than me, most of them are younger than me now, it's sad, questions about licenses and about ordination. And the, the question I like to ask, especially those people who are ready to be ordained, is this, what's your message? Have you found your voice yet? Is there a particular message that seems to kind of permeate all the other things that you want to say? Very smart candidate says, I think so, but what's yours? (laughs) I said, okay, here's mine. We are meant to live life in the light of the resurrection. That yes, the death of Christ accomplishes lots And the resurrection of Christ accomplishes even more. That there is a life, a reality, that is available to us as the people of God if we do the things, and by that I mean worship well, if we do the things that can, over a period of time, fund our imagination so that no far, no matter how far we are from God's conclusion, and some days when Russia invades Ukraine, it feels like we're a long way from that point, amen? When there's a pandemic, it feels like we're a long way from that point. But no matter how far we are from God's completion of all things, those of us who are living in the light of the resurrection, who have worked very hard to be shaped, our imaginations, our sight, our words, our language, and our bodies, our lives, the way we live, those of us can see a way forward and can have hope and possibility and freedom that other folks can't. It matters what you imagine to be possible. Everybody, it matters what you imagine to be possible. There's still a work stoppage out there where baseball's concerned. Bunch of goofs, come on. And it means, too, that there are a lot of minor leaguers who can imagine themselves on a big league field, who can imagine the sounds The organ music at a big league field, there are a lot of minor leaguers who don't have the opportunity right now to practice, to practice, to practice, to bring that imagination to fruition. I found an incredible story of a young man who stubbornly gripped this imagination. And I want you to see the story of this young man born far, far away who somehow is able to imagine himself as a major leaguer. Watch this. Growing up in South Africa was, uh, it was fun. Um, the household that I was, that I grew up in, it was a fun household. I was brought up in the village at a young age and then I moved with my to my mom where she was you know living in the urban areas. I started playing um, I was throwing a ball against the wall um, there was people practicing I've seen them a couple a couple times already and I, I was interested in this game that they were just playing you know just a round bat and a ball and they had this glove that they put on and I was intrigued by it. The coach yelled at me and he was like, come on over, and and that's how I started. Growing up in South Africa and playing ball and having that dream to come over here uh, to the States and pursuing a dream to become a Major League Baseball player, and then now knowing that no one has reached the Major Leagues from South Africa, you know, it gives you a bit more encouragement and, you know, your why becomes bigger. there were reasons for you to get up in the morning and come to the ballpark and, you know, play the game that you love with all your heart and, you know, pursuing the dream, not only become the uh, major league ball player, but, you know, becoming the first African 
baseball player to ever play in the major leagues is a, you know, is the biggest goal that I could imagine in my life. Talked to him in spring training about the responsibility of uh, leading a nation in a ground single in the center field for Gift Ngope. We'll have to check his heart rate again. Gift Ngope's first at bat in the major leagues. The man from South Africa singles to center. And that ball will be tossed out. It might go to Ngope. It might end up in Cooperstown. hope you get the metaphor. I'm not saying that Gifting Gope is a Christian. Maybe he is. That's not the point of my bringing up his story. But just imagine living in poverty in South Africa when you spot someone playing with a strange-looking ball and a stick and a glove. Imagine how the love for this game fueled and funded his imagination, but imagine the costs. Imagine the distance he would have to travel. Imagine all the different layers of captivity he'd have to navigate and overcome along the way. Imagine all the dreams he dreamed along the way, dreams of playing under the lights, dreams of of the sights and the sounds of a major league ballpark, dreams of hearing an organist play, take me out to the ball game live. (laughs) Just imagine the size of the whole task. Imagine how stubborn he must have been. Imagine how much hope it must have taken to move him from captivity in all of its forms to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania (laughs) to face John Lester and the Cubs. No offense. But now imagine that there is a greater hope available for you and for me and for us each week. Is it the kind of hope that might someday get you to the major leagues? Likely no. (laughs) But it might just get you to freedom. It might get you out whatever captivity has gripped your throat and your life. At the very least, it might shape you to hope and shape you for a life lived in the light of the resurrection. The reality only God can offer. You talk about being called up. This is being called up in all the best sorts of ways. And when we gather around this table, we take into our bodies, our very bodies, little bits and pieces of tangible hope. (laughs) Hope, possibility, forgiveness. If you are helping us today, please come and set this table. As they are coming, God, I would pray that you would bless this bread, this cup, So simple in its form, and yet in your hands it is so much more. Give us the grace now, God, to give into your hands these moments. Into your hands our very lives. Into your hands our imagination. Our hope, God, is that in these sacred moments that you would shape our imaginations and equip us Resource us to believe something that perhaps today, because of all the different captivity that we face, maybe we don't even think is possible. But give us just a little bit more of a glimpse today. Because we are dining at your table, give us just a little bit more of this resurrection imagination today. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet, all of, those, all of you who want to. If you don't want to, we understand and you are certainly not compelled to participate. But all of you who recognize your need for grace are welcome to participate. And we invite you to come down front 
to a person holding a plate of bread. When you get there, that person holding that plate of bread will say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Take a piece of bread then. It'll be pressed into your hands. Take that piece of bread, dip it into the cup. When you do, that person will say, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And then take and eat. And then find a place to pray. Pray that God would have access to your imagination and to all that would hold you, me, us, captive. You may not be comfortable yet coming forward to take a piece of bread, but you may still want to participate. The people in the aisles who are going to be dismissing you row at a time are carrying small plates of prepackaged elements. And once you get one of those prepackaged elements, just take it and go ahead and take and eat and drink right then and there. It is just as good, does just as much to shape you, to shape your imagination for what could be when we give our minds, our hearts, our lives to this God. It was on the night that he was betrayed that our Savior took bread. He blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you and every time you eat of it, remember me. Later he would take the cup, hold it up before them and say, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant now shed for you. And every time you drink of it, including today, remember me. And so now, all of you who will, as you are dismissed by road, please come forward to receive these gifts of God meant for the people of God. very brief prayer of confession before turning this over to Jason for prayers of intercession and the Lord's Prayer. Heavenly Father, forgive us. Confess that there are times when we don't imagine you to be big enough. We confess that there are times when we imagine that the captors and the captivity is just too strong. For forgive us, God, for underappreciating all that you offer us in your very presence, all that you offer us as we gather around this table. And now, over these next few moments, I would encourage you to pray your own prayer of confession. What captivity, what captivity have you given yourself to? What captivity would God like to overcome for you, for us right now?
hear this before I turn it over to Jason. May the Almighty God have mercy on us. Forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness. And by the power of the Spirit, keep us in eternal life. And would you just spend a few moments with me in prayer? And so God, on this Sunday, we ask that you would come alongside of those who need you the most, those experiencing war, those experiencing loss, grief, pain, those who have a funeral to go to this week, those who have lost a beloved pet. In all areas of life, God, where we need you the most, God, we ask that you would come alongside of us. And God, we ask that you would be with the one whose heart is heavier than all of our hearts. God, would you be with those who need you the most? God, we ask that you be with those who've been cold this week without homes. We ask, God, you'd be with those, as Pastor John mentioned, who cope with ways of life that are hard and difficult. God, we pray for those who are lonely. God, we ask for your continued strength and healing in the life of our friends like Rick Stahl and Scott Peterson, Matthew Larson, and Evan Slothauer. God, we ask you to be with the life transitions and health of Glenn and Betty Fain. God, we ask you to be with those who've experienced loss in Ukraine, those who've experienced loss due to COVID. God, we ask you to be with all the brokenhearted. And God, we ask that you would come alongside of our friend and staff member and leader, Britt Bullerjack. As she's on this sabbatical, God, for I think, these few weeks, God, would you and your love and your grace and your rest come alongside of her and be with her and Aaron and Shiloh this week as they get to be together. And God, would you shape and form us into being your people who follow after this prayer, the prayer you taught your disciples to pray in church, would you pray along with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.